Thank you, Ms. Hunter. You know, we'll now turn to questions, and I will recognize myself for five minutes. Uh, Dr. Elnahal, last year we discovered uh, that about 9.7 million of the PAC Act uh, money for critical skills incentives was paid to VA senior executives as bonus. Now that money could make a big difference in attracting providers to rural areas. Uh, has, has the money been fully recouped? Uh, Mr. Chairman, the money is in the process of being recouped uh, from the executives who received it. Okay. Um, okay. Are there safeguards in place to make sure we don't do that again? <laughs> well, the one of the first things the Secretary did was ask the Office of the Inspector General to do a full look back on how those decisions were made in error, and that is ongoing, okay. um, and we will work closely with the Inspector General on that. Thank you. Uh, that will then, of course, inform our policies to make sure that uh, all of these things are transparent to senior leadership and that we make decisions according to policy and the law. Yeah, thank you. Uh, also, I need to ask, between two, 2016 and 2022, uh, the budget for the Office of Rural Health grew about 68%, and that's about $311 million that I mentioned in the, the opening statement. What, what meaningful impacts have been made with that $311 million in, in 2022? So, Mr. Chairman, the Office of Rural Health really plays an important role uh, in two main ways uh, in making sure rural veterans benefit from appropriated funds. The first is actually funding uh, research initiatives, but also operational initiatives that extend our care to veterans across the country. And so in multiple ways, the Rural Health Office has done that. For example, they've coordinated with our health informatics team uh, and our field leaders to distribute almost 200,000 tablets uh, to veterans across the country to be able to make sure they can have access to telehealth and the convenience of their own home. And that also speaks to a partnership we have in the interagency with the Federal Communications Commission. We also have commissioned many studies to figure out what disparities exist, um, as uh, Ms. Hundrup mentioned, uh, among rural veterans so that we can bring more resources and more, more care uh, available. And the second main function uh, rural health does is coordinate uh, the actual execution of those funding, of those funds, and make sure that program is, is benefiting veterans. And so everything between our minority veteran coordinators who reach out to American Indian and Alaska Native veterans to our range and E-range programs for mental health are assisted by the Office of Rural Health. I think you've probably in your, in your statement there answered this part of my question as well, but maybe you want to expand on it. What is ORH uh, initiatives that have have the VA adopted across the enterprise as a program model for, of care or best practices? So another example, Mr. Chairman, that I haven't mentioned yet is the mini, Women's Health Mini Residency Program, which has done now over 200 events and trained more than 500 providers, refreshing the unique aspects of women's health care needs and making sure our clinicians are read up on those. In fact, women's health uh, is an increasingly important focus, and that's a, a close collaboration between the Office of Women's Health and the Office of Rural Health. And so uh, that on top of uh, multiple initiatives to get care uh, as conveniently close to veterans in rural areas as possible uh, really underlies their focus. So none of the offices of the Rural Health's 35 uh, in a, in a initiatives place more providers in the rural areas? But we, is that right? Well, we have enterprise-wide initiatives that are trying to bring care closer uh, to veterans in rural areas. Uh, and so the Office of Rural Health assists in multiple ways in extending access, but 
Uh, we have hired uh, a record number in just one year of providers in rural areas just last year. In fact, the growth rate of rural health, empl rural employees rather within our healthcare system exceeded our overall growth rate at 7.7%. And so uh, that is an operational priority that I set as my first priority last fiscal year. And thankfully we've seen better staffing in rural so, areas. So do you think that, um, that I know that a lot of the problems with, with telehealth is that no connectivity, okay? Would we be better off uh, budgeting uh, and, and be better spent on facilities and providing like more mobile facilities as well? Mobile medical units are a very important part of what we do as well. Uh, in fact, we just announced in August that we're deploying uh, 25 mobile medical units to assist with homeless veterans, including in rural areas. So that's just one of many examples. I also mentioned in my opening testimony our Close to Me infusion service and national tele-oncology, where we bring providers um, you know, over a certain period of frequency to veterans who need chemotherapy in clinics that are closer to them. Normally, chemotherapy infusion services are offered at our larger uh, tertiary centers, our larger medical centers. But we know that uh, increasing the convenience and reducing the travel time is just a more reliable way deliver care for rural veterans. Thank you. My, my time's expired, and uh, Ranking Member, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Elnahal, uh, you know, can you talk about some concrete efforts at VA uh, to hire uh, healthcare workers in rural areas, you know, particularly in the area of mental health? What, what have you been able to achieve? Yeah, so uh, mental health is a major focus of our hiring efforts. Uh, we hired uh, thousands of mental health uh, providers and mental health staff uh, last fiscal year alone as part of my broader priority of hiring faster uh, and more competitively. We also have programs that are specifically related to veteran outreach and care delivery in rural areas. So one of them is RANGE. RANGE is a program that uh, allows for a more intensive care coordination for veterans in rural areas who need intensive outpatient uh, mental health services and helps connect them to inpatient services like resident, residential rehabilitation treatment programs when they need it. And so we recognize that more intensive care coordination could benefit rural veterans, and those two programs are just a couple of examples. Well, great. Uh, would you agree that uh, Congress has given uh, the department a range of tools, a lot of tools, uh, a lot of authorities to be able to uh, recruit and retain employees? Um, I mean, do we need to give you any more? Well, I'll tell you, the PACT Act authorities, Title IX of the PACT Act, helped us significantly in increasing our total employees on board to the tune of us now having more employees on board in the healthcare system than at any point in history, more than 410,000 employees in the healthcare system. Everything from recruitment and retention incentives to better loan repayment to the ability to pay retention incentives up front when people come in has made us that much more competitive. We do have a legislative proposal uh, called the VA Careers Act that would help us be much more competitive with physicians. We were only able to increase physicians on board by about 2.3% last year. That did exceed our previous years because of these enhanced authorities. But we're leaving us of the $400,000 cap, especially for specialty physicians who far exceed on average that amount for many specialties would be extremely helpful. So uh, we do have a need to increase the specialty uh, physicians um, and uh, we need to really get serious about that, uh, especially with regard, this hearing is about rural uh, areas. Um, it's especially challenging uh, to get 
uh, specialty care into uh, rural areas, is it not? It is, Congressman, and in fact, uh, the salaries that folks command in specialty care areas and rural areas are much, much higher than often we're able to pay. And so uh, it's why we've had this as our first legislative priority uh, proposal uh, coming out of the administration for veterans uh, for a couple of years now. We know that this will just better enhance access to care for veterans, reduce wait times, and make care better. Um, I mentioned in my opening statement, uh, Dr. Allen Hall, that uh, rural hospital closures have been accelerating in recent years. How is VA factoring the shrinkage, uh, the shrinking footprint of community providers in rural areas into its long-term infrastructure and workforce planning? Yeah, Mr. Ranking Member, I completely agree that uh, the degree of closures of critical access hospitals and other healthcare infrastructure in rural areas is highly concerning, especially because of the disproportionate number of rural veterans uh, who need care in our system. And in fact, for inpatient care, we often rely on these institutions uh, as it stands to be able to meet that care. Uh, so uh, in response, we have to invest in our direct care system. We are often the only healthcare providers for particular specialties for veterans in rural communities. And we absolutely have to hire, but also create more infrastructure and be able to get appropriated funds to create that infrastructure, especially with this concerning trend of closures. You know, especially with specialty care uh, being absent even in the private sector, I mean, it's clear to me that care in the community doesn't solve the problem of access to care in these rural communities. I mean, might we have to consider like solutions like uh, somehow getting VA's uh, specialty physicians into these areas and possibly sharing them with uh, others in the community that need them? Might we be thinking the other way around instead of thinking, uh, open it up to community, maybe the communities in these rural areas need VA uh, special specialists that uh, can be shared uh, with Medicare and Medicaid and whoever, and whoever on the Indian Health Service? Well, the first thing I'll say is, uh, you know, veterans do disproportionately in rural areas rely on community care, so I don't want to undercut in any way the importance of our community care program. Uh, these are critical partners for us to deliver timely care for rural veterans, but you're right in that there often aren't good options in the community for veterans to receive the care that they need. Again, doubling down on our need to build infrastructure. We have a partnership similar to what you're uh, talking about here with the Public Health Service Corps. Admiral Levine recently uh, communicated to us that she intends to have uh, now 200 Public Health Service Corps officers deployed within VA for their healthcare experiences. We will disproportionately deploy them to rural areas. And thinking about other health, uh, federal healthcare systems like the Indian Health Service, with whom we just um, renewed an MOU for reimbursement for their services for American Indian and Alaska Native veterans, looking at our partners at DOD for enhanced staffing, all of that is on the table for consideration. Thank you. I yield back. I'm sorry for going over. Representative Ben Orton. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Elnahal, I, I want to start by thanking you personally. Um, we spoke quite a while ago, and I gave you a copy of a letter written by one of my constituents about their brother committing suicide uh, because they couldn't get an appointment at the VA. I know you've done personal follow-up with that widow, and uh, that's a stand-up thing to do. And uh, that really speaks to your level of commitment as a public servant, so I appreciate that greatly. Uh, I live in a very rural district. I mean, this, this committee hearing is perfect for us. And the, 
the big complaints that I get from my constituents, and it sounds so simple, is the removal of a kiosk so that folks could get their travel claims. And so I guess, Mr. Jacobs, is, is a travel claim that payment, is that considered a benefit? We provide travel reimbursements in uh, instances of CMP exams, but right. if you're talking about reimbursement for medical care, that would be uh, handled uh, in the health okay. system. So like when I go to the optometrist at the La Crosse VA, which is awesome, yep. um, you're supposed to be able to file for reimbursement for travel. Well, here's the problem. Before, you used to be able to just push a couple buttons, and it'd be your birthday, your social security number, and your name, and then it would say, here it is, you'd sign it with your finger, direct deposit, done. Um, but now, because these kiosks are gone, and it's my understanding that someone forgot to renew the contract during COVID, um, you've got to do this first. This is a 40-page document about how to do ID.me. And you got to follow all these steps on a computer in order to get an ID.me identification number. And then when you're done with that, there's this 16-page step-by-step document for people to fill out a travel claim. And so my concern is this. Um, we have Korean War veterans that have a flip phone that do not understand you know, the technologies involved. And we have folks that it's been addressed already that don't have broadband internet. So are you guys taking concrete steps to get, either get these kiosks back or to radically streamline this process? Yes, Congressman, and I will tell you, I will not mince words on this. Uh, we did not do well with this transi transition with the you know, beneficiary travel online system. We should have co-designed that better with veterans, and we should have rolled it out much more carefully, and certainly before decommissioning a process like the kiosks that veterans were used to, it should have been deployed better. And I take ownership of that. Uh, that has happened over the last several years, as you mentioned, throughout the pandemic, uh, but we will do better. So one way that uh, I'm ensuring that any veteran has the option, if they are not uh, able to use the online system for various reasons, uh, they do have the option to fire a, file a paper claim to be able to get uh, reimbursed. I didn't bring a copy of that, but it's an extensive yeah. thing also. That's my point being this, sir, is that we had something that was incredibly efficient for the veteran. It was perfect. It even could tell you your appointments for the day. And we spend so much time deriding a bureaucracy, as we should, because you're here for the business meeting. You saw that we have an oversight responsibility uh, assigned to us by the Constitution. So when we had like one thing that really worked and then we got rid of it. Yeah. So that's part of our frustration. So maybe as opposed to, you know, redoing this, you know, that's like 70 pages worth of stuff for people that, I mean, I'm old too. He was right. Scott was, that's, didn't appreciate it, but you know, the truth hurts sometimes. Um, maybe we could think about re-implementing the system that we absolutely know works. Yeah, well, we, uh, I commit to you, Congressman, that we will make this better. And for the kiosks uh, that do exist, we are not going to be decommissioning them. Okay. Uh, so that at least the veterans who are used to using that process will have that. But there are a total of four ways now for veterans to get reimbursed. We just have to do better in redesigning them to making them easier. And to be able to do a personal touch with veterans, especially veterans like Korean War vets, 
who are on average less uh, able to use this type of technology. We have to bring a better process to them. That is VA's responsibility, and you have my commitment. Excellent. And I would like to continue to follow up with your office because, again, that's like the number one complaint I get from all my constituents. I'd like to thank you guys for letting me jump ahead. I appreciate it greatly. Mr. Uh, Chairman, I yield back. Representative Browning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary. It's nice to, nice to see you. Um, I, it's my understanding that VA estimated that only 8% of enrolled rural veterans are women. Um, why? Do you, I mean, that seemed low to me, um, and I'm curious to know if there's rationales or reasons for why that is. I will always start, Congresswoman, by saying that it's VA's responsibility to increase enrollment and increase <clears throat> access to care for veterans no matter where they live or what their gender is. And so I think the first and most important reason is that we need to do more outreach and we need to reach uh, more veterans in rural communities who are women. And we take that very seriously. Uh, we have a collaboration between the Office of Rural Health and our Office of Women's Health to be able to do much more outreach. And I'll pass uh, the baton quickly to Mr. Borsler to help talk about ways that we're going to reach more rural women veterans. Oh, and thank you, Dr. Elnahal, and, and thank you, Congresswoman. I, I absolutely agree, and we do have a lot of uh, uh, really great programs to reach more women veterans. As you know, uh, as this committee knows, uh, women veterans are our fastest-growing customer population at VA, and um, we are, uh, especially in the last year and a half since we've implemented the PACT Act, uh, we've been able to reach more women veterans to, in, in increasing their access to benefits and care. Um, but in particular, reaching women veterans and all veterans in rural areas has become a big focus for us, especially as we uh, roll out our VA radio outreach program, which has been able to record 60 different public service announcements for different personas like women veterans and Native American veterans and other minority veterans that are in rural areas to be able to reach them if they don't have access to broadband internet or they're not able to, uh, to go to their nearest facility. And we've been able to partner with 150 uh, different syndicates in these rural areas. And so there's a lot of work being done. We're also proactively text messaging lots of veterans, including more women veterans in these areas, so that they can uh, have better access to care and benefits. Very good. Mr. Jacobs, you talked about historic outreach. Um, and so I'm just curious to know of the outreach that you did that was historic. You know, how, how many more veterans um, who are now qualified to receive benefits? Did you capture that number? So in fiscal year uh, 2023, we had a 40% increase in the total number of claims we received relative to last year, which was an all-time high. We also delivered more benefits to more veterans than we ever had in our but history. But how many more veterans just, you know, yep. who are new to the VA who qualified for to receive benefits? I don't have that number, but I'll get back to you for the record. And can you, did you have a breakdown at all in terms of men versus women? I would have to get back to, back to you on that. We do uh, proactively try to uh, uh, conduct outreach targeted to uh, uh, encourage more women veterans uh, to file claims but I don't have those numbers in front of me. Well, I, it, yeah. if you would provide them, Absolutely. I would appreciate it. Yep. Um, that would be great. Um, uh, Mr. Secretary, you, you mentioned uh, IHS and the MOU that was, and when was that fin finalized? Uh, Congresswoman, we announced it at the White House Tribal Nation Summit uh, just last month. Just last month. So I'm curious, because I had, a, as chair of the Health Committee a couple of years ago, we had a couple of hearings on this, and... 
Um, I'm curious to know, because I know one of the issues was that uh, veterans, uh, veterans would, would use IHS for general health care, and then they would use the VA for specialty health care. And then when they went to the VA for specialty health care, the, the VA repeated you know, a lot of the different tests and assessments that were done with IHS. So I'm just wondering if the MOU addressed that um, so that the VA isn't doing more tests than they need to do in, in order to um, prescribe what a veteran may need in terms of their health care. Yeah, you're describing a frustrating experience, Congresswoman, that I hear uh, all the time for veterans um, who have to often repeat their histories and where clinicians don't have the information available to them. And so uh, the MOU was mostly focused on how we will reimburse the Indian Health Service and better coordinate with them uh, to be able to deliver a, you know, a comprehensive care plan for American Indian Alaska Native veterans. Uh, but we have uh, a lot of collaborative work going on to make that process as seamless as possible. And especially in rural areas and for tribal veterans uh, in particular, they often have to go to different systems because of the general lack of healthcare infrastructure. And so that's why the relationship with IHS is so important. It's why, for example, we opened a couple of more contract-based clinics in the Navajo Nation alone to be able to bring uh, you know, care closer to veterans. All of that happened just over the last several months. But us working better and more seamlessly with IHS on the ground is extremely important to prevent what you're talking about. Thank you, sir. I yield back. Uh, Representative Muradwagon. Thank you, Chairman Boston and Ranking Member Takano for holding this hearing. Talo Falaba. Thank you to the witnesses for your testimony. This issue is very important to my home district as our veterans must fly thousands of miles to receive anything more than the most basic care. Our veterans in the rural and remote areas deserve the same level of treatment as the rest of the country. Telehealth and other initiatives have come a long way in improving access, but there are still gaps to be filled. So Dr. Elnahal, GAO recommended that VHA update its guidelines for establishing outpatient intensive mental health care programs. How is VHA planning to revise these guidelines to improve access to mental health services for our rural veterans, particularly those with serious mental illness? One of the main uh, ways we do that, Congresswoman, is through our range program which is essentially an intensive case management program that makes sure that rural veterans in particular, including veterans uh, in our territories, are getting the care that they need. You know, an extra hand to be able to coordinate that care, canvas all options, including not only VA care, but also community care, and making sure the dots are connected for veterans so that the care is both timely and effective is the focus of that program. And it's in fact focused exactly on what you mentioned, the intensive, uh, the veterans who need intensive outpatient and in some cases inpatient services for mental health, and we're very focused on it. Thank you. You know, a, a GAO report from last year indicated that VHA does not analyze mental health care data by rurality. How does VHA plan to incorporate rurality in its data analysis to better understand and address the disparities in mental health care utilization 
between rural and urban veterans. That effort is more than possible, uh, Congresswoman, and the way that we're approaching that is essentially by using this very specific uh, geolocation information for both veterans and our infrastructure uh, to better understand uh, who needs what no matter where they live, including, of course, rural veterans. So uh, that report was very helpful to us. It helps us uh, really be able to try to slice the data in the way that's helpful. And by the way, helpful not just to folks at headquarters, but more importantly, uh, folks who are at the clinics and in the infrastructure in rural areas to better target the veterans they can serve. So Dr. Elnahal, we noticed many of the initiatives, Office of Rural Health Funds are related to telehealth. How is ORH coordinating with relevant VA offices, such as the offices of connected care, primary care, and specialty care? One of the main ways that you see that collaboration is through our clinical resource hubs. So every network uh, in the system, including Vision 21, which uh, serves the Pacific, has a clinical resource hub. And across our system, we have about 800 telemental health providers in particular uh, that are able to, uh, and in fact, spend all of their time uh, coordinating and providing care uh, to rural veterans via telehealth. And that uh, is a collaborative effort between uh, rural health, connected care, uh, and the Integrated Veteran Care Program, and of course, our operators in the field uh, who execute on that. And what are you doing for veterans that lack broadband internet access or prefer to see providers in person? So we have a collaboration with the Federal Communications Commission that helps us essentially cover the costs vis-a-vis uh, -vis FCC's authority uh, for much of the broadband uh, and Wi-Fi services um, you know, total bill that veterans need. And that number continues to grow for veterans served. And of course, veterans also have to have the devices to be able to use broadband. And so uh, that really underlies our effort to hand tablets to the uh, vast majority of them are rural veterans, almost 200,000 uh, we've distributed. Um, and so uh, we calculate that almost 100%, about 97% uh, of the encounters uh, that we're seeing with telehealth for rural communities and, uh, is delivered in the convenience of the veteran's home. So we will keep trying to expand those programs. We know that rural veterans will continue to need them. So VA talks about expanding access through telehealth, but 27% of veterans don't access the internet at home, as you've mentioned, and lack of broadband connectivity is still a major issue in much of rural America. And yet, one-third of Office of Rural Health's initiatives are focused on telehealth. What is VA doing to address infrastructure issues? Uh, so we have that program with the Federal Communications Commission Congresswoman that helps us uh, offer, um, you know, the ability for veterans to cover the costs of broadband and Wi-Fi services. Our task is to just make sure every veteran who needs this and who qualifies for it knows about it and that our uh, local teams are letting veterans know about it. And we won't know unless we ask the question to veterans when they come in for care. And we just have to do that with every opportunity we have, especially for our facilities in rural areas. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Uh, Representative Sheffless McCormick. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to say thank you to Dr. Enelhal for visiting my office, Undersecretary, um, visiting our district, actually, and speaking to the mental health um, uh, services that are available to our veterans. And I wanted to pick up on the question of um, the tablets that you handed out. One of my first community projects was to actually hand out tablets to connect people to telehealth 
One of the things we got back was some people didn't know how to use the tablets because they weren't digitally savvy. Have you come across that with our veterans who are receiving them? Yes, uh, we have, I have heard that personally, and we've also had uh, oversight reports, including from the Office of the Inspector General, uh, that talked about that and a number of other issues. And so uh, we are working to change that. Uh, we really need to be uh, helping veterans not only uh, you know, get these tablets, but know how to use them and know how to use our applications, like My Healthy Vet and the VA.gov uh, global application. Uh, and that really needs to be uh, a close, you know, veteran-centered education that happens. So uh, we are working on that. We're trying to improve the way uh, that we educate veterans on this and provide a helping hand. Uh, I view that as VA's responsibility. And how big of a problem is it? Is it a huge problem or a very small problem that you're running into? Well, the problem varies depending, of course, on the service area and the age uh, of the veteran. And uh, we know that rural veterans, on average, are older. Uh, and so, uh, again, it is really the responsibility of VA, in my view, uh, to take a full, comprehensive approach uh, in helping veterans through that process to learn how to do it. Um, now, I have a question about best practices, as was mentioned by Ms. Um, Hendrup. Are you guys, what steps are you taking to make sure that best practices are being established, especially for our rural veterans? When I go throughout my district, I see there's a huge difference with the VA in West Palm Beach, in Miami, and even outside my district. So what steps are you guys taking to ensure that they're getting the best services available to them? Yeah, so uh, we are addressing the issue of best practices through our Office of Rural Health Promising Practice Program. I'll just give you one example that was unique to rural veterans. Uh, I served in VA. This is my second time serving in VA. My first time, uh, I focused on the very topic of spreading best practices, collaborated with the Office of Rural Health extensively. And one of the best practices to uh, get more advanced care directives for rural veterans filed, uh, for veterans to be able to define what they would like uh, to receive in terms of end-of-life care that should be the veteran's decision and should be a plan well in advance of them needing end-of-life care. Uh, there was a re really innovative practice where it was essentially group classes and group visits. Uh, rural veterans obviously have more difficulty getting to our brick-and-mortar infrastructure, and so to hold classes like this when we know rural veterans are coming in for care, to educate about advanced directives and on the spot offer the opportunity for rural veterans when they are ready uh, to you know, file their advance directive is one of many best practices that get, just gets a very needed piece of their care delivered. So the Office of Rural Health works with our innovation team and uh, other members of our team at headquarters to make every corner of our system know what is working for veterans. Thank you so much. I yield back. Representative Rosendale. Oh, Kagan, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. I just, it's been great to hear about some of the improvements for access, expanding access to rural health care, since I think that's what we're here to discuss. Rural access and VA, are we meeting veterans where they live? And, and I think there's some room for improvement. We've done good things that you all have mentioned, telehealth, mobile clinics, transfer, improving transportation service. That's great. But I, as a nurse practitioner, want to talk about an issue near and dear to my heart, and that's expanding the scope of practice for advanced practice RNs, uh, nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetists, a lot of midwives, there's so many of us that, that fill such a void for healthcare, especially for rural health. So I know that uh, the VA provided guidance for APRNs in 2016, and you published that report, and CRNAs specifically were left out of that. So 
uh, nurse anesthetists who are not allowed to practice to the full scope uh, of their potential. So I, I wanted to uh, just note some of the things from the guidance. Talked about uh, expanding full practice authority for CNAs, CNRAs would not harm team-based care and that anesthesia care provided by CRNA, CRNAs is equally safe with other physician supervision. This was from that 2016 report. Also in that report said the VA believes a significant shortage of anesthesiologists exists and that this leads to cancellation delays of surgeries, particularly in rural settings. I know that after that time, the VA uh, partnered with Temple University Beasley School of Law in 2022 for a VA commission study, uh, which concluded uh, the policy about CRNAs and decisions on their standards should be guided by current available data. The data provided in the study shows that removing restrictions on CRNAs had no negative impact on patients, may be a cost-effective solution to physician shortages, and may increase access to care. So in the wake of reports on canceled surgeries and acknowledgement that 25% of VA facility chiefs of staff reported problems recruiting or hiring anesthesiologists, it is of the utmost importance that the VA reconsider their exclusion of CRNAs from their 2016 rule on the APRNs. Additionally, APRNs, including CRNAs, are typically more accessible to historically underserved populations in geographic areas, for instance, rural facilities, which are more heavily, heavily reliant on CRNAs for anesthesiology and surgical practices. So I guess my, my question is to Mr. Elena Hall. Can you just tell me why? Why are we leaving CRNAs out of the picture? This is a time when event, we need advanced practice nurses more than ever to fill those voids. They are capable, all of this, this data, and I could go on and on about proving that their outcomes are just as good, if sometimes not better, uh, than some of the physicians we employ. So why are they left out of the equation? Well, the, the first thing I'll do, Congresswoman, is uh, identify myself with your support for advanced practice nurses. More generally, they've been some of my best colleagues in healthcare delivery personally uh, as a physician. Um, and I also want to clarify that our current policy is one where uh, advanced practice nurses and CRNAs in particular where uh, our medical centers are in states that allow full practice authority for CRNAs. Uh, medical centers do have the authority to extend privileges uh, for full practice authorities in those states. And so uh, we have many medical centers already doing this consistent with that policy and consistent with state licensing guidelines. The question at hand with the national standards of practice is whether or not through our federal supremacy authority potentially override state licensing restrictions on those professions. And so that's the question at hand as we look at the national standard for CRNAs. My team tells me that just over the next uh, year or two, we're gonna see more data that would help in our final decision-making on what that national standard should look like. And so we wanna make sure we have the most up-to-date and important information for us to be able to take that extra step and say, VA, through its federal supremacy, will grant that authority regardless of what a state's licensing regime says. And that right now is still deliberative. Uh, I haven't made a decision on that, and my team uh, has not recommended a decision on that yet. Yeah, I don't know how much more information you need to have the outcomes be very obvious that we need these guys. We need them now because we're not providing the care to our veterans, especially in those rural health settings again. Um, you know, I come from Virginia, where the, and we, we recently, only in the past few years, allowed for nurse practitioners as statewide to, to have full practice authority. 
But VA led the way. You guys did it first. So you, you know you were brave. You went out there. You filled that void. I think you can do it in this this uh, this instance too. So I will be watching as a member of this committee, as a nurse practitioner, and watching and waiting for you all to approve full practice authority for our, our CRNAs. Uh, and I know I'm running out of time. Actually, I only have five. So I will yield. But thank you very much. Representative McGarvey. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> thank you all for being here today. Appreciate your all's testimony. Dr. Allen Hall, thank you for your testimony and for sharing the great work that VA is doing to address the needs of rural veterans and their families. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky, the state where I'm from, where my grandfather is from in that area, and all of the other rural areas that really struggle with access to care and how we better reach them. Um, I'm excited to see that telehealth visits are expanding. Um, 2.4 veterans have made 11.6 million telehealth visits, um, but only 770,000 of the 2.7 million enrolled rural veterans, or 29%, are using telehealth. Uh, my colleague, Ms. Radowagon, asked a little bit about this, and obviously, we've got to see some more access to broadband, what we can be doing now, appreciative of, of the American Rescue Plan Act, of the infrastructure laws that are going into place but I know you guys addressed that a little bit. Um, so I wanna talk a little bit about the programs themselves uh, because obviously you all share, we all share the, the commitment and passion to get healthcare to our veterans because they've earned it. They've earned it and they deserve it. Um, so you've got the at-home screening for colorectal cancer. You've got the remote monitoring for prevention of diabetic amputation, these types of programs. Uh, Dr. Elna Hall, how does the VA determine how to design these programs, whether a program is working, and how to quickly scale it up. The best programs, Congressman, in this area have really come organically from our field leaders and field clinicians who understand what veterans need uh, close, close to the ground as they, as they serve them. And so, um, you know, a lot of our uh, home monitoring programs for things like congestive heart failure, the diabetes amputation program that you mentioned started in one or two or more of our medical centers. We're discovered and lifted up as a best practice and then become supported better and better through our infrastructure. And so I think that's the best way uh, that we service uh, these really effective programs. Mm -hmm. and, and I know you're setting up a new office of digital health as well. Can you tell me about how the VA plans to untether veterans, especially our rural veterans, from just solely relying on the brick and mortar model of care? So the impetus for this office, Congressman, and I'm glad you mentioned it, is a recognition that digital health will just become more and more of the part of the expectation of patients, not just veterans, but across the country. Uh, and we have to be leading on this as we have historically with telehealth. And the best way to do it, in my view, is through human-centered design. And so that is an office that will have the infrastructure and collaboration uh, with the Veterans Experience Office to be able to work with veterans to understand how technologies can be accessible, how much education are we offering, but how are we designing the programs up front to be able to make it as easy and effective as possible to receive that care? And I'm happy to pass to Mr. Boisler for more insights on that. Well, thank you, Dr. Elna Hall. And, and as he pointed out, you know, the, hum the human-centered design or veteran-centered design in, in this case is really understanding the pain points, the bright spots, the moments that matter along each customer journey, whether that's a specialty care journey 
or an outpatient uh, care journey for rural veterans and non-rural veterans alike. And we, we continue to do that uh, in, in almost every business line. We also consistently monitor on the quantitative side and through our veteran signals or V-signals survey platform, we're able to see uh, uh, and monitor the increase in trust, ease, effectiveness, and emotion. And I'm happy to report there are great scores for veteran access to care for uh, outpatient services in particular, which are higher among rural veterans, more rural veterans trust VHA outpatient services than non-rural veterans, mm -hmm. as well as emergency medicine, vet centers, and community care. So there's a lot of great quantitative data there as well. Awesome. Thank you. And just in, in closing the time we have left, in your all's opinion, what is the best action we could take now to help veterans get this type of care? I think, Congressman, ensuring that we have the resources to be able to uh, not only extend the best and most modern technology, uh, but also that we have the right workforce uh, in place to be able to lead uh, what is really the digital revolution, especially with um, you know, the advent of gener generative AI, uh, would be extremely helpful. Uh, we are going to, out of our digital health office, uh, lift up our AI program to make sure that we're following the trustworthy AI principles that the president outlined in a recent executive order, but then put uh, as much potential forward in a safe and secure way uh, to be able to meet veteran needs. And so, of course, that means telehealth. It means uh, as much home monitoring as possible to make things more convenient for rural veterans. And uh, really everything that we can do to make the daily job and the daily work easier for our clinicians to be able to deliver that care. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Representative Rosendale. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair, uh, and thank you for holding this hearing. Uh, I want to start off uh, this afternoon by thanking publicly Dr. Alna Hall. Uh, I am known to hold people accountable and raise hell on occasion when things are not being done the way that I would like to see, and I do that publicly, and so I want to make sure that everyone is aware of the great job that, that we are, are seeing right now. Um, for far too long, ineffective leadership oversaw poor hiring procedures and tolerated serious medical mal malpractice. Veterans suffered as a result. And while there is still work to be done, I am very encouraged with the new leadership at the Montana VA at Fort Harrison uh, at starting to implement changes leading to improved care for our nation's heroes. I appreciate you and Secretary McDonough for being responsive to my initial letter conducting the preliminary investigation, requiring a comprehensive review, and keeping my office thoroughly informed, hiring an interim executive director and bringing in outside help. I've made it my mission to fix the Montana VA to ensure veterans receive the best health care possible, and I'm thankful for your willingness to partner in these efforts. Again, I want to say that publicly because we've had many conversations over the last several months, and, and the work is, is uh, bearing fruit. It's really been turning out good. Thank you, Congressman. Yes, sir. I'm passionate about ensuring veterans have easy access to effective health care services and believe telehealth is an essential component. In Montana specifically, patients who otherwise would have to spend hours driving to an appointment, often having to take time off of work, have come to rely on these telehealth services. We saw them expanded dramatically during COVID, obviously, but, but in, in Montana, it's just a way of life without COVID. Dr. Allen Hall, in your testimony, you mentioned that for the fiscal year 2023, the VA delivered 11.6 million telehealth episodes to over 2.4 million veterans. This number was the highest for the VA in any fiscal year. 
What do you anticipate the demand for telehealth to be for the fiscal year 2024, and what steps is the VA taking to meet that demand? Well, Congressman, I appreciate your recognition that we're providing uh, more telehealth than we ever have in history. I can tell you we plan on offering more and more of it because the expectations of veterans in all generations, frankly, uh, are to receive more and more convenient care. Uh, not only are uh, post-9-11 Iraq, Afghanistan uh, veterans who are pursuing modern and convenient care, uh, but we have data that also shows that more than 50% of rural veterans prefer telehealth as the primary modality. And so I'm uh, going to see if we've modeled what the expected, the expected volume should be this fiscal year. I don't have that uh, in front of me right now, but we'll be sure to get that back to you. I can almost guarantee it'll be more telehealth than we've ever done before. Great. If you could get those numbers to me and then just some kind of summary of how you plan to address that increase, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, as you can imagine, we're challenged with both uh, the broadband and technology issues in, in Montana because the state is so rural. Some of these areas just aren't able to get it, and with the travel. Uh, that being said, I want to dive into the travel issues. Veterans across Montana uh, have told me about the difficulties with the beneficiary travel self-service system, especially for some veterans who are not as proficient in technology. This has led some veterans to give up in frustration and not to obtain the reimbursement they've earned. And when you're traveling literally hundreds of miles, that's a finance, large financial impact. Uh, the veterans like the old kiosk system. I know that you spoke to that a little bit earlier, but I wasn't here. Uh, so why is it that we can't bring back the kiosk system that worked better for veterans? I know that there was fraud and waste involved in it, but with the investments that we could make there, uh, we could make improvements for the security of that, if that is the problem, and, and make sure that we still eliminate the waste and fraud while, while keeping those, those consumers and, and veterans happy. I'll just say, Congressman, we have to do a lot better with that system. And I'll say that up front and admit it to you as I've admitted it to my team. Um, I will tell you that our process for instituting this new system was not done correctly. We did not design it with veterans. That's why we're collaborating more than ever with Mr. Borstler and his team with the Veterans Experience Office. We're gonna keep the kiosks we have, but we have to maximize and make the options easier to use for veterans. So there's four options now. The VA.gov patient check-in is a new one that we just introduced. We're gonna to try to educate veterans on that and see if they respond well to it. But uh, similar to my comments before about the Office of Digital Health, we will make sure that we focus on this and make the design uh, much easier to use and better. It's a major focus of ours. Very good. Thank you so much. I see my time has expired. I would yield back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. Representative Luzio. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and good afternoon, uh, everyone. Thanks for being here. I, I want to pick back up on uh, some of the telehealth discussion Mr. Rosendale and you were having, Dr. Elnahal. Uh, I recently was at the, the Beaver County Clinic in my district and saw some of the technology there for veterans who come in uh, who may not be able, because of internet access or technology, do it from home or do it from somewhere else. Uh, I encourage more of that so that f veterans can do those appointments, perhaps with a specialist. In my case, it might be uh, University Drive or Heinz in, in Pittsburgh VA. Um, my question, though, you know, if VA is unable to offer an appointment that makes someone eligible for fee-for-service care out in the community, uh, they might receive virtual care out in the community. Why shouldn't we consider virtual care as an access standard uh, if VA can provide a virtual appointment? That's exactly our intention, Congressman. The Secretary announced it last year. 
uh, that if we're able to deliver an appointment via telehealth and the veteran agrees and our clinicians think that that's an acceptable modality of care for what they need, that that should count toward our ability to fulfill an appointment according to our wait time standards. Uh, and so we are working on that uh, through rulemaking um, and it'll be a number of other elements that help us factor in the importance of telehealth. Uh, but we strongly believe that again, if the veteran agrees and our clinicians think it's acceptable, uh, we can offer that as satisfactory in meeting the standards. And thank you and, and please proceed as best you can there. I mean, one of my overarching concerns, I mentioned this with Secretary McDonough when he was here uh, last year, it was the, the ballooning cost uh, for the fee-for-service care side of the ledger uh, relative to what we're seeing at VHA. And you know, I, I'm not going to cite you every study, but of course, VA's own uh, systemic review study, which I think now has looked at 57 studies itself, continually shows the bulk of the findings are the VA is doing as well as, if not better than, uh, care at fee-for-service or out in the community. I think even on wait times in particular, that was stark to me, how much better VA is doing what that trend looks like relative to providers uh, out in the community. And so I, my great fear is we are not investing in VA's ability to give and relying on uh, an, a community care fee-for-service network that there are provider shortages that many of us see in our districts and communities um, that we should be strengthening VA, but love to hear your perspective of, you know, can VA scale up? Should we be? What is your thoughts here? I agree with your perspective, Congressman. You mentioned the studies. We also participated in CMS's overall hospital quality star rating system for the first time uh, just this past fall. And when we released our results, 67% of our medical centers score either four or five stars on that rating compared to fewer than 50% of hospitals in the private sector. Uh, and so overall, uh, our direct care system provides exceptional care. These are people who focus squarely and only on veteran care by definition. We have some of the best researchers expanding the pie of knowledge and the services that we can offer, new treatments, effective treatments. Uh, we do rely on the community though when we cannot offer timely care uh, to veterans. And that is a backstop that is still important, especially for rural veterans. But investing in the direct care system has been among my top priorities to include more than 61,000 people we hired just in fiscal year 23 alone to make sure we have the team in as many areas of the country as possible and growing our healthcare workforce in rural areas by 7.7% in just one year. Well, and I'll, you know, I'll point to a couple of these findings, and I'm, I, I know I don't have a ton of time, but one about uh, a study of veterans who live within 20 miles of VHA facility and comparing those to send to private hospitals. Uh, for emergency treatment, and the mortality uh, rate was much worse in the private hospitals. That gives me cause for alarm and thinking we should get veterans, we should be investing in VA so that veterans are getting that better care. I also point to um, the OIG report last year on prescription of opioids uh, and the lack of oversight we were seeing in the fee-for-service community care providers. Uh, the ranking member and some of my colleagues and I sent a letter to VA, which we wait that response. Uh, and so one, any update on when we will hear that response, and two, I will urge that we have at least the same scrutiny you're seeing in VA on those prescriptions when it's happening out in the community as well. It's an extremely important issue, Congressman, and I regret that we have not gotten that response back to you yet. I'm sure that's our top priority uh, in correspondence to get that back to you. Uh, but what I'll say is, uh, you know, we have an oversight responsibility over this. 
Um, we know that there are some levels of redundancy uh, on this. You know, there is a lot of states and there are to some extent federal oversight requirements on opioid prescribing. Uh, we require folks to uh, look at essentially uh, what is a, a public database, uh, patient by patient, on uh, what opioids they've been prescribed historically, the prescription drug monitoring programs that we engage in. Uh, but our uh, responsibility is to veterans no matter where they get their care. And if they are pres being prescribed too many opioids, VA has to be on first in identifying that and holding our community provider partners accountable. Okay. Mr. Chairman, thank you. I yield back. Dr. Melmix. Uh, thank you very much, Chair Boston. Thank you for uh, holding this hearing. Uh, and uh, quite honestly, it's been apparent to me, so I'm both a physician and a veteran, married to a veteran who's also a nurse, and I was a nurse prior to becoming a physician. Um, and it's very apparent to me when I talk to veterans in my community and as a physician providing care uh, that the Mission Act is not being fully implemented by the VA. And that became readily apparent when we had our health sub on residential mental health and uh, substance use disorder where the VA did not even think that uh, mental, residential mental health and substance use disorder fell into the parameters of the Mission Act. And so therefore getting a patient in within 30 days uh, was, uh, was not part of uh, that type of care. So I'm just gonna be blunt here, color me unimpressed. You can take accountability for the fact that you got rid of a kiosk system. To me, it's bureaucrats deciding, this would be a great idea, we're gonna do this. But guess what, just like EHRs, we're not gonna talk to the people that use these systems. So we're not gonna talk to veterans to find out what they want, what makes it easier. You've had multiple complaints, you know about the complaints, veterans complain about it, but we haven't done anything. And so whatever money we thought we were going to save by getting rid of the kiosk, you, that money is now invested into increasing VA employees to train people how to do stuff instead of, and this is the same for the Office of Rural Healthcare, and believe me, I've done this as a physician, we need people who deliver care, not people who study care. It's great that you're talking about advanced directives. All patients should have advanced directives. But do we have to set up a training program, go out into rural areas to make sure veterans have access to knowledge about advanced directives rather than when they're at the facility, it's done? I don't care to increase the bureaucracy of the VA with people who aren't delivering care. What I want is for people to receive care. And we shouldn't have to do a bill that says, if you need residential mental health care and you need substance use disorder treatment, that that has to be within 10 days because the VA doesn't see it within their parameters to deliver that care. Or that you go to another vision that's two or 300 miles, uh, miles away from your home. Or that we're gonna call you the day before your appointment uh, to make an appointment, which we get under the 30-day timeline because we don't want people going out to the community. Absolutely, there should be oversight of care wherever that care is delivered. Fully supportive of that. But I am not supportive of people who know what their problems are, know that there's access of care issues because people can't get into the VA, but yet don't want them to receive community care in a timely fashion. So, um, and I think this is both for uh, Dr. Elna Hall and, and for Mr. Jacobs. Has there been a decrease in veterans filing for travel claims? To my knowledge, Congresswoman, um, that is not the case. I think we're seeing more uh, travel claims, but I have to get that back to you for the record. Yeah, because I know veterans who aren't filing for travel claims because of the difficulty of doing that. 
Dr. Ellenhall, how is the VA ensuring optimal diabetes management for rural at-risk veterans to prevent foot ulcers and amputations? Yeah, it's a really important program that we have, uh, not only uh, care that we provide in person uh, for you know, wound care and ultimately diabetes management to prevent the need for amputations, but we also have a remote monitoring program and a telehealth program specific to that, uh, again, supported by the Office of Rural Health. And we've seen uh, some really promising results that I'm happy to send to you and your team. Uh, Congresswoman, we want to expand that offering as much as we can. And I certainly think technology uh, uh, can uh, truly help to give access, uh, especially with the cameras, our digital um, uh, ability to do things that we have not had in medicine. Uh, but I'm just gonna say, it's one thing to take ownership of problems that you know about. But one of the things that very frustrates our, um, our veterans and our constituents is that there's never accountability. You still have your job, despite developing a program, rolling out a program that has been extraordinarily cumbersome for veterans. Uh, our rural healthcare office, it's great to study whether or not veterans can have access to studies, especially if their study is cutting edge on medications to treat disease. What I want to know is, are our outcomes improved? Do we have less veterans committing suicide? How are we treating PTSD? What's our cancer cure rates? What's our amputation rates for our diabetes? I have volunteer organizations in my district, volunteer, which receive no money from the VA, are not VA employees, who actually do a job, a better job, of reaching out to veterans and taking them down from a suicide risk and treating their PTSD only because they're just there to serve veterans. That should be our goal and our mission. Thank you very much, I yield back my time. Representative Budinski, you are recognized. Five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ranking Member, uh, for this opportunity. Good morning, everyone. Um, I want to uh, thank you, thank you to all my colleagues and the witnesses for your time today to discuss the urgent issues around rural health care access, in particular. Um, I represent a very rural district in central and southern Illinois, and I've heard concerns from veterans back home about the need to expand health care. Um, I've especially heard this concern from our women veterans. Um, in September, I hosted my first Women Veterans Roundtable in the district, and among the issues mentioned was the lack of awareness of women-specific services provided by the VA in rural areas. And so I'd like to use my time to focus on our women veterans in particular which leads me to my first question um, for Dr. Elnawal. Um, what are some examples of initiatives and research projects funded by the Office of Rural Health that focus on women veterans living in rural areas and their access uh, to healthcare? Um, and how is that office helping to disseminate information about services and resources to our women veterans um, in rural areas? Thank you. Yeah, it's a, a mandate that we take very seriously, Congresswoman, to mm -hmm. make sure that we are the ones getting women veterans connected to care and rolling more women veterans, fastest growing demographic mm -hmm. uh, by far are women veterans, and of course for women veterans in rural areas to make sure that they get the care they need. So uh, the first program uh, is the Women's Health Rural Mini Residency Program, which really primes uh, our providers uh, in rural areas to understand the unique needs of uh, women veterans. And our Office of Women's Health 
uh, leads that. We've uh, already trained more than 500 providers uh, using this, over 200 events, and we continue uh, to grow uh, that offering. We also have the Women's Healthcare Rural Coordination Program for uh, essential screening that's gender specific, so breast cancer and cervical cancer screening. Uh, we've seen an uptick in screening as a result of that program, thankfully, and you know, we continue to want to expand that. We also have uh, specific offerings for women veterans uh, in tribal areas, um, uh, American Indian, Alaska Native veterans, uh, through just uh, offering better cultural uh, care. And so uh, I'll ask Mr. Borsler to help supplement the outreach we're doing uh, for women veterans as well. And uh, yeah, thank you, Dr. Elnahal, and, and thank you, Congresswoman. I actually uh, wanted to mention this earlier, but we didn't have enough time, but we hosted our first Women's Veterans Experience Action Center last fall. Mm -hmm. It was a national program really focused on getting uh, increasing access to VA benefits, care, appeals, cemetery and memorial affairs services, really, really, really successful in partnership with all the offices and many of the women veteran service organizations in, in the country. Another great example is in, in South Dakota, which is a highly rural state, we have about eight community veteran engagement boards. It's all run by one woman veteran, an army veteran named Jill Baker, and she has been hosting listening sessions throughout the state focused on women veterans and outreach and, and, and access to VA uh, care and benefits in partnership with representatives from our VA facilities in the state and surrounding areas. There's a lot of best practices out there that we're really anxious to share and continue to increase access for benefits and care for women veterans across the country. That's really great. I mean, I would love to find an opportunity to, to build something out like that within my own district to help specifically women veterans. And maybe we could lean on you and follow up with your office specifically about how we can get tapped into kind of those best practices that you mentioned. Um, I'd really appreciate that. Um, my next question um, is for uh, Ms. Hundrup. Um, I know the GAO has looked into VA healthcare uh, for rural vets. Do you have any input based on what you found on how healthcare for women veterans um, in rural areas uh, can be improved as well? I would just underscore what's already been stated. I mean, I think just the first is the recognition and the acknowledgement and having the awareness and really looking at the data First and foremost, you've got to understand and analyze it by rurality, by, by gender, to know that, and then recognize the unique needs. Um, for instance, we've talked a lot about hospital closures. I think the VA um, pays for maternity care. It doesn't offer those services, and we're seeing obstetric units closing, as with other hospital closures around the country. So just having that awareness and then being proactive and taking action in terms of outreach and then getting those services. Okay, that's great. Um, can I just go back to Mr. Elmahal, maybe just giving in an opportunity to further elaborate on some of this work? Um, um, if at all, are women veterans represented as an area of focus within um, the Office of Rural Health Strategic Plan um, or its research agenda in particular? I've heard, you know, from women veterans and their organizations specifically, the research side is sometimes kind of lacking as it relates to um, you know, specific outcomes related to women veterans. So I'm just curious if you could speak to that too. I would say, Congresswoman, that our Office of Women's Health, which by the way reports directly uh, to the Undersecretary for Health, mm -hmm. um, is taking the lead on research for women's health services. In fact, we have an incredible leader uh, over that area. We've, uh, she's done incredible work over the last uh, many years, Dr. Becky Yano, uh, who really commissions health service re services researchers across the country, helps 
fund those studies and support them. I had a chance to address our women's health researchers just a few months ago. Uh, and they continue to develop insights on where we are seeing inequity, where we need to place more services. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is make sure that our operation responds to those findings swiftly, and that informs our infrastructure planning, our hiring planning. Uh, women veterans, especially in rural areas, deserve that. Yeah, I would love to follow up with your office and, and those offices and folks just to hear more about how I can integrate some of those ideas into the work we're doing. Uh, thank you very much. I yield back. Representative Sisamani. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all for, uh, thank you to all our witnesses also for coming before the committee to lend their perspective on the issues facing rural veterans. Uh, with over 70,000 veterans in my district, in District 6 of uh, Arizona, which encompasses large sections of rural areas, I'm constantly looking for ways to identify gaps of um, discrepancies in access to housing, medical examinations, and care. I've worked hard to address barriers to access to care for our veterans, specifically disability exams for our rural veterans. Uh, through two different pieces of legislation, I have aimed to increase the number of exams conducted and ease in which uh, our veterans can access exam providers. My bills tackle these challenges by not only expanding the pool of providers who can conduct exams, by also, but also extending the ability for providers to provide care across state lines. Further, I worked with Chairman Tom Cole to introduce H.R. 4155, the Tribal HUD-VASH Act of 2023, which would make permanent uh, the HUD-VASH program a critical effort that ensures our tribal veterans have access to quality housing as well. Veterans of all walks of life deserve a, deserve a safe place to call home. Now, ensuring those who sacrifice have the opportunity to receive the care and respect uh, they were promised is one of my top priorities here in Congress. The federal government has a solemn duty to ensure our veterans have the care and respect they were promised. And this is a responsibility I don't take lightly. Now, uh, as my first question here to uh, uh, Dr. Ellen Hall, a veteran, uh, uh, to, to your knowledge, are there any steps being taken to specifically reach and inform uh, female veterans in rural communities about relevant VA healthcare services, especially in regard to maternal health? Uh, yes, Congressman, and uh, we take very seriously the need to uh, focus very closely on the care coordination for women veterans, every medical center in the country to include uh, our rural facilities has a women's health coordinator to be able to guide the care and make sure that we are not seeing uh, lapses in care or unanswered phone calls uh, or missed appointments. And these uh, coordinators uh, have a very busy plate. They're some of the best professionals we have. And so that's just part of our standard work every day. So for example, if a, a woman needs maternity care, if she becomes pregnant, uh, we have a very intensive care coordination program that helps guide that care in the community because we don't provide uh, direct obstetrical services uh, in our direct care system. Those are just a couple of examples. Mr. Borstler mentioned our community veteran engagement boards. I'm not sure if you have uh, further comments on outreach. And especially in the Veteran Experience Action Centers, we've hosted successful um, engagements in uh, American Samoa, uh, the other Pacific Islands, Michigan, Indiana, uh, Montana, 
other highly rural states, uh, and we'd love to do the same in Arizona in, in the coming uh, months and years, Congressman. Uh, these, these Veteran Experience Action Centers are essentially three-day enrollment sprints where veterans will have access to the Veterans Benefits Administration, Health Administration, Cemetery Administration, and the Board of Veterans Appeals to solve their issues. And in many cases, they're, they're talking to multiple administrations about multiple issues they have. And the experience scores that we're seeing from these events are in the 90th percentile. We do a specific uh, outreach to women veterans and minority veterans and Native American veterans uh, so that we can increase uh, the enrollment in those events from those populations. Well, I definitely want to know more about that. That actually leads into my next question, and that was directed to you, Doctor, but uh, either one of you could answer. How does the Office of Rural Health measure, uh, you guys measure the impact and the effectiveness of the mobile medical units, as well as mobile vet centers, in improving healthcare access and outcomes for rural veterans? And also, if you can mention what steps are taken to adapt these services based on the feedback and needs of our rural veteran communities? So uh, our mobile medical units, Congressman, uh, just have an incredible infrastructure that uh, can travel around very flexibly. Uh, they have areas for uh, you know, being able to draw labs within the vehicle. They uh, often have the ability to beam in, uh, to have any provider through telehealth who may be a specialist to come in and serve veterans. And so uh, just really important assets. Uh, we've seen from uh, the GAO, but also uh, other oversight bodies, the need for us to better track uh, where these mobile medical units are going, how they are being used, and what the outcomes are. And candidly, that's something we need to work on uh, and better developed in order to meet those recommendations. We've concurred with all of them. Uh, and we just want to make sure that we're making maximum use of these assets to reach as many, especially rural veterans, as possible who could most benefit. Well, it's definitely the goal, and also, uh, back to your point, um, also, uh, Mr. Bolster, uh, regarding expanding this to Arizona and those services, I think that's critical. So I look forward to working with you on all this. Thank you so much. Chairman, you're back. Dr. Murphy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all <clears throat> for coming. I appreciate what y'all are doing on the work on behalf of veterans. I, I, uh, I'm very blessed to be in a district in eastern North Carolina where about 10% of my constituents are veterans. Camp Lejeune is there, Cherry Point, New River Air Station, multiple other uh, military uh, um, communities that are there. So it's a huge, huge aspect for us. On the other hand, we're also an extremely rural area. Um, when practicing full-time, still practice some, uh, we had a 29-catchment rural area, one major hospital. Um, it's, a, it's a huge burden, um, difficult. I, I, one of my colleagues mentioned earlier that he thought he read one study where veterans got worse care at a private institution. I want to read that study and pick it apart because, as you guys well know, most of our literature is nonsense. And so I'd love to see what that means because that's just the opposite of the experience I've had. So um, one thing before I want to get into some of my questions. Um, Dr. El Nahal, can you tell me what these executive bonus things we started at the committee meeting was about? Because I may just preface it by saying I'm appalled at the hospital administrator bonuses um, that go on across this nation when the people who are actually taking care of the patients, doctors and nurses, don't get them and all these other things. So the administrators getting the money frankly pisses me off. But if you'll go ahead with that. Well, in short, Congressman, we discovered that um, bonuses occurred that were outside uh, what we thought was legislative intent and, and outside of our policy. And upon discovery of that, 
uh, we made the decision to retract uh, those bonuses for headquarters uh, executives. And, and uh, I get the whole thing about competition in this country, but it's also, it's, a, it's something that's played explicitly, well, we're gonna lose somebody who's competitive. That's nonsense. So anyway, let me get back to actually the, the meat of what I would like to ask. Um, I think it's a, uh, becoming more and more and more uh, apparent to the uh, country that we're experiencing an overall shortage of physicians and it's gonna be apocalyptical in the next three to five years with the shortage of surgeons, especially those uh, who are we're getting Medicare cuts day in and day out. Um, uh, I know that the VA has sometimes a hard um, job in competing with hospitals who get extra money um, now um, because of some of the subsidies they get and everything. And so I, I understand the pressures that you guys have in recruiting. I really do because it's a real world situation and some of the uh, previous administrations, some of the laws put into, fate, into place make it so much more difficult if you look at tertiary consequences down the road and what's happened to our physician community. It's turned into, and I'll just say this way, just with so much employment of physicians, it's turned into so much of a uh, transitory physician market rather than ones who come down and put their roots in communities. And that's even worse, I think, affected with the VA. So I, I would really love to know, um, you know, you, the VA can't do it all. And as you and I talked on the phone the other night, the fact that you thought that the VA efficiency was 60% compared to medical centers, which compared to private practice is normally about 60%. So we're really looking at a depletion in efficiency. How you're one, gonna fix that, and two, how you're gonna use the private community, the private world to assist our veterans? Because I don't believe that about nonsense about getting worse care at a private institution than at the VA. So I really wanna know your strategy for fixing that. Well, Congressman, I appreciate you asking that because uh, we are here to provide the best quality but also the most timely access possible to veterans. And uh, access really just means how much we are able to, how many veterans we're able to bring through the door uh, in a timely way through our clinics across the country. And so uh, that is why the first thing uh, I announced as a major priority was to hire enough clinicians to be able to do the job. The more clinicians we have on board, uh, the more timely we'll be able to see veterans. The second thing we did was double down on a strategy that we called bookability, which is to really uh, make sure that every provider uses the time that they are booked as clinical to fill that time with that, by at least 80% with veterans scheduled into their clinic. The rest of the time should be for walk-ins, for same-day care when needed on an urgent basis, and to take care of you know, some of the important documentation work and other tasks that physicians have to do. But that 80% standard now we are enforcing across the country. We did see an improvement in clinician productivity overall in fiscal year 23. We're going to continue to double down on that and make sure that we make most use of the direct care system as possible. And your second question on community care, when we are not able to meet timeliness standards or when we have infrastructure that is too far for veterans, we do offer community care as required by us under the Mission Act. And that will continue to be a critical piece of what we do. In fact, we are now, as of last fiscal year, nearly a $30 billion payer for care. And especially in rural communities, we will need to be relying on community care uh, for you know, a at least a portion of a lot of veterans' care. I, I would, and, and I appreciate that. I would ask that you look at actually community care, actually paying people, because I took care of veterans for so long and we never got paid in community care. Um, 
it's a difficult job with turnover, and I'm not asking you guys to be slave drivers because there is competition that goes that there, but asking somebody to do 80% of 100% of job with allowing for work is, is not asking too much. One quick question, I'll just maybe follow up with somebody else because I know my time is overdone. Is the VA part of the CSRS system, the, the drug reporting system? I'm, I'm not aware of that conversation. Right, the reason why I ask this is because different states, North Carolina, we have a, a system which some idiot in the state house wrote um, uh, that, uh, I, that was me, um, uh, that uh, just looking at drug usage and everything before you prescribe an opioid or an anxiolytic, you have to, you have to query. Oh. And the thing is, it needs to be internet. It needs to be state. It needs to be a nationwide because some people can jump right across yes. borders. And if you're not interfacing with the private community uh, system, also, there are people who are going to be gaming that system. Now, now I'm tracking, Congressman. We do have it. We call it the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, uh, and we participate. Uh, last I checked, with at least 49 states' programs okay. to be able to query that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll yield back. Mr. Crane, we recognize for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Jacobs, your testimony stated that uh, VA held 436 claims clinics across the country. What is VA's plan for ensuring that rural veterans, rural community, and Native American tribes are aware of the options to request a claims clinic? Yeah, Congressman, thanks very much for that question. What we've identified at a national level is that we're serving rural veterans at a slightly higher percentage than urban veterans uh, in terms of benefits utilization, but that highly rural veterans are being served at a slightly lower percentage. Now that varies in community by community. So as an example, I was talking with our regional office director in Oakland earlier this week, and he shared with me that the rural communities that he serves are having a lower benefits utilization rate or actually they have a higher benefits utilization rate than their urban counterparts. But if you go to other parts of the country, the inverse is true. And so the way that we're getting at that is we're utilizing a population mapping tool so we can look state by state and county by county to determine where we have penetrated uh, the communities, where we are appropriately serving veterans, and we can target those areas that are underserved. And we're using that tool to drive the decisions about where we go to conduct claims clinics. And we're doing that in partnership with the State Departments of Veterans Affairs, with county veteran service organizations and officers, with our VSO partners, and uh, increasingly with the tribes. On that, uh, Mr. Jacobs, why do you think that is? Why do you think in rural communities um, our veterans are accessing um, these facilities more? I think they're accessing benefits in, in some cases because they've got incredible local resources. We have uh, incredible partners in the county VSOs who do uh, wonderful work in educating veterans about their earned benefits and helping connect them to those earned benefits through the filing of their disability claims. I think in some cases it's network and word of mouth and so understanding where there are opportunities and, and uh, community me members and friends helping one another. Uh, and, but I also realize that's not true in every part of this country. Thank you. I got to follow up on that real quick, sir. Which program office should Native American tribes contact to request a claims clinic? And can you assure me that their request will be fully considered? They can contact my office, and uh, certainly I'd be happy to work with, with you. Uh, one of the things that uh, we have done 
uh, is we are now for the first time ever accrediting tribal veteran uh, representatives. And so- How we, do they contact that, that your office, Mr. Jacobs? Uh, I'd be happy, my email is joshua.jacobs at va.gov. Send me an email. Okay. Um, we also have a veteran service organization uh, liaison uh, that will help and every single regional office uh, uh, director uh, would be happy to help as well. And so through partnership with the local uh, regional offices, uh, through the contact at the national level, through our VSO liaison, we can help identify where there are opportunities to pursue in collaboration with local tribes, uh, additional uh, claims clinics. How do you guys, how does the VA prioritize um, these claims clinics from rural and uh, some of the tribal nations? We're looking uh, at them more broadly. And so as an example, um, the three of us were in Nashville uh, late last week for the Student Veterans of America Conference. And uh, while we were there, we had staff who were there to help veterans uh, process, file and process claims. We had folks from our medical disability examination office, from our education service office, and we had mobile medical units from our four vendors who conduct the CMP exams on the ground to help with veterans. And we were able to help hundreds of veterans on the ground. So we identify events like that, large VSO conferences, but we're also identifying using that tool that I mentioned where there is great unmet need. And we do it both from a data-driven perspective, but also based on the input that we're getting from our partners where they're hearing anecdotally where uh, there may be unmet need. So is it a geographical distance to uh, a facility? Is that how you guys prioritize? Or if you've got, let, let's say you've got 10 requests, but you only have five resources, who gets yeah. priority? That's what I'm asking. It, it really is case by case. Um, so yeah. you can't provide a uniform answer, but what we are doing is looking, where can we get the most bang for the buck? In some cases, we have a very low percentage utilization in a small population we're still gonna to have to make that decision. I think there's value in going there, even if we're not able to serve as many veterans because we've identified an area where we, there is not enough benefits being utilized. In other cases, we're gonna make a different decision and it really just depends on the circumstances. Thank you, Mr. Jacobs. Yes, sir. I yield back. Representative Self. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this is for pretty much the entire panel. I continue to be frustrated with the VA solution to everything is more inputs. We never see health outcomes. Y'all believe that you solve a problem by throwing more money at it, a new organization, a new position. Uh, I never hear that we have had a decrease in diabetes. We have had a, a decrease in heart conditions. We've had certainly suicides. Uh, so I, I just ask you, and. Uh, Ms. Hundrup, I would ask you to start measuring that because in your testimony, uh, the 300 million that was totally uncontrolled uh, or accounted for formally, uh, I would ask you to start uh, uh, measuring health outcomes because all of this process, all of this infrastructure that we're discussing today, what's the benefit? Not that they use a benefit the way you term it, but what is the health outcome benefit to our to our veterans. I, I don't see it in any of these testimonies written, uh, so I continue to be frustrated with how much better off are our veterans because of VA as opposed to just throwing another process, another organization, and some more money at it. And while I'm on money, uh, I have uh, already told the, uh, the VSOs that we need to get a better handle on offsets. The only offset that this committee has 
is charging veterans additional home financing fees for a new program. So we're charging veterans for every new program that we put into the VA. An offset, that's not an offset to me. An offset to me is when we say, this is a very noble program. We must have this program. It is vital that we have this program. So what less noble program are we going to find an offset in? Every program is noble, but a less noble program, what are we going to find an offset in? Because that's the rules of the road here. We find an offset. And I don't think the... Uh, the housing, housing finance uh, fee that we charge veterans is an offset because it adds to it. I've got the CBO as a problem. I, I understand the, the scoring issue. Uh, but those are, those are two issues that I wanted to highlight. And uh, I'm not sure which of you is going to answer this, but what percentage of claims is actually filed by an outside organization? My rural VSOs tell me that they believe that it's like 90% of all claims are not started within VA, they're started by some VSO. Is, is that true or not? Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers. <clears throat> I'll follow up and get them, uh, so I'm, I'm not misstating, but we rely very heavily on accredited representatives like VSOs and county VSOs to help veterans, and they do that for free. We're increasingly concerned about other actors coming in and trying to charge veterans for something that they've earned through their military service. But we do rely on uh, outside entities to help veterans pull together, explain information. We're available at all of our 56 regional offices. We've got a national contact center. We've got a website. Uh, there are public outreach events where we go and try to explain it, but we rely on and okay. value very much. I, I would like that figure if you can get yep. it to me. And my rural VSOs also say that when they go into your website, this may have been covered by one of my colleagues in a different format. They, they bring up their current claim, and one of them showed me his current claim that shows the documents that supposedly have been put in to justify that claim. They're not live linked anymore. They're dead documents. So when you copy the PDF and you put it in, it goes nowhere. And that's concerning to my rural, VS, uh, my rural veterans because they can't get a true picture of the status of their claim. So I just ask you to look at that, and I would like a response on that as well. Yeah, C Congressman, I would ask uh, if there are rural VSOs that you've been talking to, uh, I'd like to meet with them to talk about the issue, and I'll bring in my team, and we'll make sure. Absolutely. Through that we'll directly. set it up. Hunt County, Texas. You Hunt County, it. Texas is where you're going. Love it. And uh, I want to just ask you a general question. How do our rural, I've got 30 seconds, so my question is, how do our rural veterans health care compare to the rural citizens who are not veterans? Do we have a feeling for how they compare? Well, Congressman, um, you know, we could do analyses on health care outcomes per your previous comment. Um, I can tell you that our medical centers do score very highly, whether uh, rural or not. Uh, on CMS's overall hospital quality star rating. And so that's actually a pound-for-pound pound comparison between VA medical centers and private sector medical centers, and more than two-thirds of our medical centers score the top two ratings compared to only about 42% uh, of the private sector. And many of our four- and five-star medical centers are in rural areas. Okay, very good. Thank you, Chairman. General Berkman, you're recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Dr. Elnahal, 
I saw that you called a few days ago. I'm sorry I wasn't able to take your call. I was driving, so I wasn't doing anything uh, illegal that would get me a ticket. No problem, Congressman. So uh, the point is, uh, I, underst I understand you were talking about one of my constituents when Secretary McDonough and I were up in uh, Baraga. Thank you for correcting uh, ju me. Just think of, we have a lot of black bear in the area. It's a, it's a wonderful part of our environment up there. So just think of walk, coming into that little town and seeing a bear looking you in the eye. So it's Baraga. I will not get that wrong again. And, and I, I, I had the same conversation with Secretary McDonough <laughs> when he had the same challenge and we laughed about it, but they're, they're, they're good folks up there. Um, let me ask you a quick question here. You know, in your testimony, you describe how it's uh, consistently more difficult to recruit physicians in rural areas, probably other health care providers as well. It's my understanding that the VA allows for independent, certified, registered nurse, anesthetist, that's a tough one for me, maybe Barriga for you, but anesthetist for me, <laughs> uh, practice uh, in about 40 VA facilities, typically in, typically in more rural areas. Does the VA see a difference in either outcomes or patient satisfaction at those facilities compared to, you know, others where you're, you know, not so rural or not so remote? That's exactly the question, General Bergman, that our, our team is deeply analyzing now with our own data to understand whether there are differences in outcomes. And I have not seen data that has shown uh, worse outcomes, whether it's rural or urban uh, areas. The question we're trying to answer with the National Standards of Practice is whether we override uh, state licensing restrictions on CRNAs. Uh, but as you mentioned, we do authorize CRNAs independent practice in states that allow that under their licensing system. Okay. And uh, to discuss one specific program, last month GAO found that VA was not reliably collecting or reporting performance data on its uh, MMUs, mobile medical units, uh, which provide a wide variety variety of care to veterans that are, you know, literally cannot, they don't have internet, they can't, they can't, you know, get out of their house or to get to, um, to get to a provider. Um, how does the Office of Rural Health measure the impact and effectiveness of mobile medical units for rural veterans? And what steps uh, are, you, are being taken to adapt these services based on the feedback, so the loop? Service provided, feedback loop, modifications, better. Any, any comments on that? Well, the first thing I'll say, uh, General, is that we concurred uh, strongly, I would say, with uh, GAO's insights on our need to better track what mobile medical units are doing. The outcome that we track should be quite simple. It should be access to care. It should be wait times for care. If we're not making access more convenient for veterans with mobile medical units, then we're not sending them to the right places. And so we have uh, what we call our uh, North Star metrics for access, which is simply the wait time for direct care, the time it takes to schedule community care, and what veterans are telling us through surveys on access. Mobile medical units have to be improving all three of those for us to know that it's working. And the reason I ask it, not necessarily to be answered now, but again, in, in our neck of the woods, literally, um, not all veterans, not all of our uh, folks who live there are gonna be veterans and be eligible for the, the mobile, mobile units. 
but if there's something going on outside of veterans health care with other entities, I'd very much like to, to hear where there's a sharing of information about where we could, because care is care in the rural and remote areas. And I'd like to, we've got, I've got 45 seconds left. Um, Ms. Hundrup, you've been sitting there very quiet for a very, very, very long time. Uh, any thoughts that you'd like to share with uh, the committee here on, on GAO's uh, perspective? Thank you. Um, I think with regard to, I'll start with the, I'll try to make this quick. I could say a lot, but <laughs> let me be brief. With regard to mobile medical units, I think we found in our work that they absolutely do have the potential to fill a lot of gaps. Um, but the information that is out there now would suggest they're underperforming. So I think just to underscore Dr. El-Nahal, we really need better information so that we have a complete picture, which will give us a better sense of where they can be more strategically used and fill a critical gap in care. Um, I think just to very briefly say, I think really focusing on the information by rurality to understand what's happening and then take action to, to develop guidance to... Um, Really just look at, we've talked a lot about women-specific issues, the needs of rural areas, tailoring that to the guidance to get that out to the field so that they can then take action. And I could go on, but I'm going to stop no, there. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Mr. Chairman, for giving me an extra 30 seconds. All right. Before I dismiss the panel, I have two really quick questions for Dr. Andahal. Uh, doctor, it is the committee's priority to ensure that VA provides a care uh, our veterans deserve. Do you think the work environment at Loma Linda VA uh, MC is conducive to our veterans receiving the care that they deserve? Well, I heard concerns, Chairman, about the work environment at Loma Linda, which is why I visited myself. Uh, and uh, it was uh, eye-opening to hear directly from employees, uh, labor leaders, and, um, you know, the difficult experiences that many of the employees had there um, and the behavior that we've seen from certain leaders in the past uh, was not excusable. Uh, I will say that I think things, the culture there is beginning to improve. I intend to get an update soon uh, from the director at Loma Linda. Uh, but what I want to make sure that the whistleblowers know at Loma Linda and every, at every corner of our system is that we're here to listen to you and we take those concerns very seriously and I'm going to be personally tracking progress at Loma Linda. I was there with uh, Representative Takano yeah. um, as well. Good, thank you. Um, also, um, in November of 2023, the Secretary committed providing the committee with a list of possible health conditions that could qualify for VA's health uh, exceptions for abortions. Uh, it's been 69 days since this commitment was given to me uh, to get the, this communication. Will you give me the commitment that we can provide that information uh, as promised by January 19th? Mr. Chairman, uh, my commitment is to make sure you get that as soon as we possibly can. Uh, we have, uh, we, we took the, the questions very seriously uh, in your latest letter and we want to make sure we provide the most precise and accurate response as possible for the record. All right. Well, thank you for being here, um, Doctor, and, and also uh, Mr. Jacobs, uh, Mr. Bolster, and uh, Ms. Handrup uh, for testifying today. And you are now excused, and thank you for being here. And with, we want to try to get the second panel up as quickly as possible and seated as quickly as possible. So.